3: I'm Kyle Meredith, and I host an interview series called Kyle Meredith With, where I talk to legendary musicians, up-and-coming artists, and whatever that is in between. I dive deep into the making of new albums, stories behind songs, but also things like how is Moby connected with the CIA, and did the Decembrists really thank Robert Mueller in their liner notes, and seeing which band I can get to reunite. Will it be Zeppelin, Genesis, Roxy Music, or Pavement? You've got to listen to find out. It's Kyle Meredith with from WFPK Independent Louisville and the Consequence Podcast Network.
4: Consequence Podcast Network. Yeah, so it's been a few years since the project. And I think I think the breadth of of links was really interesting to me. One of the things that that's always interesting is just how many artist pages reference Miles Davis as in in the context of that reference is often
2: influence. This is Matt Daniels. He's a journalist, an engineer, and the CEO of this fantastic site called The Pudding. The Pudding's doing some really pretty exciting work, utilizing data analysis, reporting, research, design, and interactivity to create what they call visual essays to explain, you know, complex or seemingly intangible ideas and stories from our culture. I came across their work through a piece Daniel's made back in 2017 called The Universe of Miles Davis. It's this fully interactive website using a ton of data that they mined from Wikipedia, and it shows the actual breadth and width of Miles' influence on music, art, society, culture, history, everything.
4: It's wild. So most musicians on Wikipedia have an influence section, and they'll say... You know, Justin Timberlake grew up listening to blah, blah, blah. And then in these interviews, he said that he was influenced by X, Y, and Z. And those were some of the more interesting ways of creating a data set around Miles Davis, is who explicitly has said, at least on Wikipedia, it's been codified that, that they're listed as, a, as an influence for their work. A good database of influence is hard to find on the internet, and this was kind of like a roundabout way of getting to that. That ended up anchoring part of the project was these are all of the artists that, that reference Miles Davis as an influence in some way.
2: You heard what he said there. Musical influence anchored just part of the project because they didn't stop there. They could have because that data set is humongous, but they didn't. They went on to plot every single time Miles was linked to another page on Wikipedia, no matter what it was. Like the fact that Lady Gaga has Miles Davis's trumpet tattooed on her arm. When they took that data and sorted it, categorized it, and put it into this beautiful visual essay.
4: It's interesting to find non musical related references. I mean, you kind of expect the references within artists and genre and spaces, such as different venues. But when you see something that is like a tattoo, it's like, oh, that's, that's interesting. You know, especially that, that that object or thing has a reference to Miles Davis out of all the things it could reference. I think one of the things I mentioned is drug user is one of the pages that reference Miles Davis. And there's a lot to unpack behind why he's referenced on that page, but just speaks to out of all the things that could exist on that page. This is the this is part of the footnotes when we see a a public encyclopedia page about something like drug use. Yeah, I think another thing I have on here is beatnik and the word cool. And, you know, to think about the etymology of a word and having a a person be part of that provenance.
2: So when you look up the word cool in the encyclopedia, there's a picture of Miles Davis?
4: Yeah. I don't know if he invented it, but he definitely should be in the, the, the history, you know? It's, it's interesting to kind of put that into perspective of his role in culture beyond just music.
2: First of all, goddamn. I mean, everyone knows that Miles Davis is cool. A lot of people know that Miles Davis had a lot to do with the genre of cool jazz, but damn... When you look up cool in Wikipedia, and I'm talking cool as an aesthetic, not cool as a temperature or even cool as a genre of music, but when you look up cool, there he is. Down the page in the section regarding cool pose, in a line that reads, George Eliot Clark writes that Malcolm X, like Miles Davis, embodies essential elements of cool, end quote. It's incredible. He's also listed in the notable usage section in the Wikipedia page entry for the phrase motherfucker, which... God, both of those. <sighs> just, you know, it's something to aspire to, right? <laughs> you gotta go check out this site. Just uh, go to com or your Google machine and type in the universe of Miles Davis. Start moving your mouse around. It's wild. Of course, you can see all the bands that he's influenced. It's just how I learned that Radiohead sites Bitches Brew is one of their main influences for OK Computer, which blew my mind. But also you can learn about the subspecies of trilobites called Miles Davis Eldrigei. The fact that Miles was a guest star on Miami Vice, which is also mind-blowing. My favorite part of it all is the section that analyzes how he is mentioned. Of course, they're looking through different Wikipedia pages. It takes all this data, and it arranges all of it chronologically. And then when you look at it this way, you can see these spikes of influence over the course of his life. What do those spikes represent? Album releases, of course. And the two biggest spikes on an entire graph are on the two biggest albums of his career. Kind of Blue in 1959. And of course, Bitches Brew in
4: 1970. So one of the spikes in the, the project is, is around Bitches Brew, as you mentioned. And I think what's interesting there is that was probably a very popular moment for him. So it's a moment in culture that was the the fuel for a lot of things to be created that related to miles davis that's probably what what, what's behind that spike so there's everything from famous shows that he's done or subsequent records or just the nature of his footprint on culture was more prolific after a successful record so that record just means that there's just more to talk about in the universe of miles davis in like late 60s, early 70s, right? The consequence of, of Bitches Brew was, was large in the sense of it created a lot of culture as a consequence of being released.
2: So when Miles Davis made an album, he didn't just make an album. He made culture that made culture that made more culture. And it's not to say that an album like, okay, Computer wouldn't exist without Bitches Brew but it certainly wouldn't be the OK Computer we know today. And he didn't invent the word cool, or even the genre of cool jazz, but would either have the cultural significance they have for us now if he hadn't released an album called The Breath of Cool. I don't think so. I read this great quote from the unfortunately late rapper Mac Miller. May you rest in peace. About am listening to Bitches Brew taught him that anything was possible in music. He said, quote, there's a free movement to it, a lack of rules, which is so beautiful. You sometimes get in a place where you start thinking too much what song you're making, and you listen to this and think, okay, I can go wherever I want, end quote. Which, if you're not familiar with Mac's career, he started out making super simple kind of stupid basic rap music but over the course of his life he evolved his career arc is so inspiring this beautiful evolution he started creating these wonderfully inventive genre-bending complicated honest albums in his latest one circles it feels like if Randy Newman made a rap record it's So unique and so beautiful. It's easily my favorite record of the year so far. And I can't help but wonder if Miles hadn't made Bitches Brew, would Circles ever been made? Or would Mac Miller still be rapping about Kool-Aid and frozen pizza? I love Matt Daniels' piece in the universe of Miles Davis because... Physically reflects something I believe to be true that our culture is a continuum feeding back and forth on itself. And that an artist like Miles can feed culture into a ton of different directions. And that's why an album like Bitches Brew is so significant, because the influence doesn't just stop when the record ends, it goes on for decades and it stretches into some pretty surprising territory.
3: always been uh, something very important
2: to me is to have this element of danger in my music. This is Brian Black. He's a man with an interesting resume. He's originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he got to start working as an engineer and a keyboard technician for Prince. And now he's making some of my favorite techno music in the world under the name Black Asteroid. It's it's super dark and super heavy, and it definitely feels dangerous. Now, I reached out to him for this podcast. I had zero evidence that Bitches Brewed influenced his work. It was just a hunch, but uh, my hunch was correct. Music's so boring if
3: it feels too safe or you know programmed. Like with this record, Bitches there there's like this sinister element of danger because it, it's so in, improv, you just don't know what might happen and it keeps you on edge. And that's, that's something I definitely uh, try to create in my music. It's having some synth or something that's doing something that's slightly out of control just keeps
2: people from feeling too safe. Now, a popular misconception about how techno and electronic music is made is that it is just, you know, a guy with a laptop programming in some sounds and voila, it's done. Certainly that does happen, but we're going to talk about something in a different class. You know, often people scoff at electronic music because of some old world hierarchy of placing analog instruments, you know, particularly guitars over electronic instruments, First of all, that is an absurd notion, generally expressed by someone who doesn't know what the hell they're talking about in the first place, but more importantly, I want to take a moment to talk about modular synthesizers, because they play a big role in the way Brian Black makes his techno music, and I think the way they're used as an instrument has a pretty interesting parallel with the way "Bitches Brew was made. That sinister uncertainty that Black is hearing in Bitch's Brew is also part of the allure of working with a modular synth. Everyone gets the idea of a synthesizer, right? Series of circuits and electric currents are channeled in such a way that produce a sound that can be played and modulated with some kind of control system. Most commonly that control system is like a neat little box with a piano keyboard, a few knobs and buttons on it. It's built by some manufacturer contained in a neat, tidy little way. You plug it in, you turn it on, you play and sound comes out, nothing goes wrong. A modular synth operates on the same principle electricity, running the currents, spinning circuits, blah, 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 blah. But the box is sort of turned inside out. And it is not neat and tidy. It is whatever you make it. Hence the term modular. Go to your Google machines. Type in modular synth. And you can see what I'm talking about. People build and customize these things the way people build and customize cars and motorcycles. They're obsessive, and they make these wild systems of electronics connected through patch cables that you plug in to connect everything. And the sound that comes out depends entirely on the order you plug the cables in, the adjustments you make on the knobs, and what circuits you create by the choices that you make. And the beauty of these systems is that you can build sounds that are so unique whole songs that can't be replicated twice, music that you will not get out of a store-bought synth and sounds you will never, ever get out of an analog instrument. They can be dark, industrial, and sinister like a Black Asteroid album, or they could be beautiful ambient music, or they could sound like a string section or a punk drum kit. It's really whatever you want to create. The danger of these systems is that you plug one cable in the wrong spot, Or you turn a knob a little too far to the right or you switch one switch the wrong way and the entire system can just come crashing down around you in total feedback chaos or dead silence. And you can maybe unswitch that switch or try to pull the plug and put it back in the other plug but you may never be able to get it back to where you were because it all builds upon itself. These are not instruments for the faint of heart. Modular synths are not for some person who looks up guitar tabs for old rock songs online. Failure is part of the program. There's a zen to working with a modular synth. You turn it on, you start plugging things in, you adjust some knobs, and you see where it takes you. And so I see why a techno artist like Brian Black, aka Black Asteroid, gained so much inspiration from Miles Davis and the way he made Bitches Brew. Because what Miles did is a lot like building and using a modular synth. Instead of different synth patches, he picked the pieces he wanted to make his band. He started plugging them in, letting them run, just to see what would happen.
3: Yeah, because the record stands for so much more. I mean, like I think Miles Davis he had influence on his attitude, his approach to music. He's always proclaiming that there are no mistakes that can happen when you make music. And it's all about the performance, not just about playing the notes and just the attitude of performing and, and producing music. And it's just, yeah, this the, the, punk attitude, like basically the, the best thing an artist can be is indifferent to what people think of them. and, He's, he's always had this indifference, you know, he just doesn't care what people think. And, and that's just like, if you can achieve that level, it's you've made it as an artist. Cause that's the hardest thing to get over is, is stop caring about others and, and uh, just try to make music that you believe in yourself. And then that's what helps you create these kind of records is when you have that, that level of indifference, mm-hmm no one looks or sounds like him. I mean it's like that's what any artist you know tries to achieve so he's it's always, always inspiring um, to, re- to think of the reference of miles when I'm working on my own music.
2: One of the reasons I loved talking to Brian is that he, in a weird way, is his own plot point on that continuum of music we talked about at the top of the episode. Maybe he's not a literal dot in Matt Daniels' universe of Miles, but he's definitely living in that universe. And Brian talks about how much he learned in his time at Paisley Park working with Prince, about songwriting, about work ethic, about everything. And Prince, of course, is a huge Miles Davis fan. In fact, there's this great photo shoot that Vogue did at Paisley Park shortly after Prince died. Rest in peace. And one shot by Daniel Arnold was taken from inside Prince's bedroom. It's a rare glimpse into Prince's private space. And leaning up against his record player was "Bitches Brew," which is just beautiful to me. I mean, it makes sense, right, Prince? Younger than Miles, you know. of course he would come up admiring Miles. That doesn't seem so far-fetched. But what you may not have known was that Miles Davis was a huge fan of Prince. When Prince came up, Miles was already well-established as this godlike figure. But he saw Prince, and he saw the future. Much like he saw the future when he saw Jimi Hendrix. Something that Miles is very good at. There's in fact recordings that Prince and Miles did together locked up in Prince's vault. Uh, legendly called the Rubber Band Sessions, they've never seen the light of day, but uh, apparently they exist. I bring all this up because this is at the core of what makes Miles brilliant, what allows Bitches Brew to exist. You know, because a lesser artist would have seen Young Prince coming up, shredding the guitars, just jamming out incredible hit after hit after hit, and taking it as a threat. Instead, Miles saw him as an inspiration, and worked with him just like he did with all of those artists on the Bitches Brew sessions. Brought them together and worked with them. As a result, he didn't just make a great record. He made culture that begat more culture. And this is the stuff that I love. You know, imagine a young prince growing up in Minneapolis, listening to Miles, listening to Bitches Brew, hearing that freedom on that record that punk attitude that Brian Black talks about. Imagine how that helped shape Prince into Prince. And then Miles sees Prince coming up, and it shapes him. And Brian Black grows up listening to both, working with Prince, and today we have Black Asteroid. We have this continuum of culture linked together in the most surprising and unique ways, feeding off each other, feeding back into itself and producing sounds like you've never heard, like some giant modular synth. And the thing powering this giant cultural synthesizer, the source of its electricity, is Miles Davis. Miles Davis and Bitches Boo.
1: You know, Miles Davis is a useful example because, you know, his kind of leadership, from what I understand, he didn't want his musicians to be somebody that they weren't.
2: This is Reed Anderson for the band The Bad Plus. The Bad Plus are this fantastic jazz trio. They draw influence from all over. You may have heard their variations on the music of Apex Twin or Igor Stravinsky or their own compositions, which are thrilling in their own right. I talked to Reed, who plays bass in the band, as well as Orrin Evans, who plays piano, about how Miles Davis's openness and creation has shaped their own work as a trio.
1: And that's really one of the main things that we've always tried to do in the band is like have this philosophy of like everybody really gets to be themselves. You know, the, the whole idea of being a, like a, a true collective. It's not, you know, you're not trying to conform to any, any particular, you know, leader. You're not trying to please somebody else in any other way than just like, okay, this is our music and we're going to play it like ourselves. That's seems to be the strength of Miles Davis. Of course, everyone who was in the room with him had the ultimate respect for him, but the ones that he chose to play with were there because they, they not only respected him, but they knew that they could be themselves. And the more that they were themselves, you know, playing, you know, not just, not that you abandon what the point of the music is, but, You know what I mean? They were there to to express themselves and have that discovery in everything they played.
2: You know, when Reed says freedom and discovery, that's coming from the same place as when Brian Black says indifference and danger and punk attitude, right? I mean, it's like two people looking at the same painting and being drawn to different parts of that image. They're both seeing the same thing. It's just impacting them in their own unique way. Every single person I talked to for this season had their own way of describing it. And in the end, they're all walking away from Bitches Brew having learned the exact same lesson. That same lesson that Mac Miller had learned. That, you know, okay, I can go wherever I want to go. Music, anything's possible. But the guys from Bad Plus make a really great point that isn't exactly a caveat to that idea, but a reminder that artistic freedom doesn't mean chaos. It's the difficult part of operating with such freedom. You know, is is finding just the right amount of freedom, and tempering it with control and skill and discipline to really harness that energy of discovery, that punk attitude, that danger, and ride that fine line to create greatness. In that, they they compared what Miles did on Bitches Brew to other great artists like uh, Igor Stravinsky and his Rite of Spring, or even Pablo Picasso.
1: One thing Miles always did, whether it's whether you're talking about kind of Blue Miles or the Second Great Quintet, or any situation that Miles Davis is in, he always brought focus. When he would enter, the focus really shifts in a powerful way, and there's and he's always providing this kind of structure. Once you look at it more globally, you you do have this structure that Teo Macero had a lot to do with as well taking the you know the original recordings and assembling them in a way that that gives it structure but on a larger scale than than people are generally used to and stravinsky you know working in classical music somebody who had a very great deal of control over structure and so forth i think to me that's one of the connections you know stravinsky and the rite of spring it's all of these unfamiliar tonalities and sounds and and very kind of primal in a certain sense but it's not primal just randomly it's primal it's it's like all of this you know sonic energy but given a structure even though it's a large structure that it, it still it still retains the, the thread of that and it's and it's still something that you can follow and that even on a subconscious level it, it maintains your interest that something's going on here this isn't just a,
2: a random occurrence that was reed anderson to start and now here's Orrin Evans, also from the Bad Plus.
1: I would say the same thing. It's both are very structured, but still have a sense of freedom. Like Reed said, no matter what, when Miles came in, there was a different type of focus on Miles that you don't necessarily have in the right of spring. But there is still this this organized confusion, for lack of better words. And that's beautiful. I mean, that no different than picasso too i mean it's just it's beautiful the the freedom is what makes it beautiful but all of those aforementioned things it's the freedom that makes it beautiful no i think yeah it's like the freedom the energy comes from that freedom of just you know it's not only the freedom of just being free but it's a it's a very focused kind of freedom you know exactly everybody's everybody's there and they're discovering and then they're they have that energy of discovery but also the energy of Okay, we're all here with you know working in this unfamiliar circumstance but we're all trying to make something happen and something comes from that and then you create a larger structure from that and it's and that's what becomes really compelling.
2: So this is how an album like Bitches Brew becomes so influential. This is how you get that big spike in Matt Daniels' visual essay. You know, that big burst of culture that's connected to the release of Bitches Brew. Because people aren't listening to the album and just trying to, you know, get the sound. They're not trying to rip off some great chorus on the album because there's no damn choruses on the album. But what they are taking away from it is something much bigger than that. They're taking away an ethos, a process. A philosophy. That's how this weird-ass jazz fusion record with no choruses ends up influencing people like Mac Miller, Radiohead, or Kendrick Lamar, or Black Asteroid in his super dark techno, or this guy. Yo, bro. Hey, man, how's it going?
0: Oh, you know, just listening to Bitches Brew, dog.
2: <laughs> this is Andy Frasco of the band Andy Frasco of the U.N., They are relentless touring machines. They play like 250 shows a year, and every one of them is unique. There's tons of improvisation. They are really over the top performers, and he is a really over the top guy, but super passionate about Bitches Brew.
0: I heard it uh, when I was actually 15 years old. It was the first girl I ever made out with, and uh, the song was playing, and it really got me in the mood. And then now, and I wasn't a musician. But when that happened, and then I dove into Miles like 18, 18, 19, and I understand a little bit better of what's going on and how he's doing it. Dude, it's amazing. For Columbia Records to put out a record like this in 1970, it's pretty beautiful. And, like, I don't think we could pull that off now in 2020. So now as I re-listen to it, it it's, it's amazing to see how, uh, how still how relevant it is. The sounds you're getting are no different than some of these, you know, of the Tom Waits of the world. And then even all these like new indie bands are just like kind of low key ripping off Miles. It's timeless, you know, like.
2: But, but, but what makes it so timeless? You know, like this record is 50 years old and it's still having an impact. You know, how is that possible? <laughs> how can it still be timeless to you? hearing it 50 years later.
0: I think it's the freedom, the freedom to do a 26 minute ronk and the freedom of being an artist on a major label and saying, this is the art I'm putting out. You know, right now these days you get a, you get a record deal and you have an A&R and you're like, I want to put out a 26 minute record or song. They'll be like, get the fuck out of here. So I think it's like the idea of the idea of having complete freedom of your art. That makes it
2: timely. So you say, you know, a record like this couldn't exist today, but we're talking about it now because it was possible to put something like this out in 1970. And it was possible for something like this to be a hit. So what's different about then?
0: I think the times. I think America was going, it's like after war. Everyone is settling in to this new life. And it was the beginning of the 70s. I think this record came out in 1970, right? It's like the same thing here with this quarantine. Like, the music that comes out of here, from here on, I think is going to be just as memorable because people were going through things. It wasn't all happy. It wasn't all, you know, lollipops and American dream. It was scary. People, their kids were dying, and their kids were going to war. And this record came out in the perfect time. It's like, maybe this quarantine is new to us. I think history repeats itself, and you can write music that can go through the full circle of history, then I think that's what timeless music is. And I think Miles did that with this.
2: So, what you're saying is that maybe a few months ago, a record like this would have been possible. But now, because of our place in the world, and the uncertainty that we're all living in right now because of the coronavirus, perhaps I don't know, perhaps this is the perfect time for this record. Perhaps this is the right time for history to repeat itself, and the next bitch's brew will emerge. Well, yeah,
0: that's what i Musicians, start taking acid and make that 33-minute fucking song, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone, everyone, this is our time. We'll be quarantined. No one's going to judge us for all the acid and and fucking mushrooms we take right now because we're stuck in our house. Get your boys over here to your house and fucking make an acid record, dog.
2: Socially distance apart, but make your acid (laughs) records six feet apart from each other.
0: Six feet away. (laughs)
2: Talking to Eddie Frasco is much like watching him play live. It's a goddamn wild ride, man. But in his own way, he's a pretty insightful dude. Because this record is so much more than music. It's a turning point for all culture. It ultimately goes on to create and influence so much more culture. We talked in the second episode about how, on Bitches Brew, Miles changed the function of the soloist. He wasn't interested in just floating on top of the melody anymore. The solo, instead, became this beacon that would guide the whole ensemble. And in a way, that's what Bitches Brew did for all music. Because in 1969, everyone had a pretty clear idea of what rock and pop music could be. Of what jazz could be. And then along comes Miles. To show us a different path. To show us that anything is possible. I think Andy Frasco is right. I think now is a perfect time to revisit Bitches Brew. I think our culture is ripe for reevaluation, And I think now, while we're all stuck in our homes. Uncertain of what the future will bring. We might as well embrace that uncertainty. Try some things out, you know? Just to see what comes of it. I want to thank my guest today, Matt Daniels of ThePudding.com. Go check out the universe of Miles Davis and all the stuff they do at The Pudding. It is that rare place that you can get lost on the internet for a few hours and come out feeling smarter on the other side. Also, big shout out to Brian Black, aka Black Asteroid. If you want to hear some techno music that will blow your mind, and perhaps (laughs) your speakers, do yourself a favor, check out his work. Big thanks to Reed Norn from The Bad Plus. Yeah, I got introduced to their work, like a lot of folks, through their cover of the Apex Twin Song film, which is nuts. But their own songs are totally worth checking out. And their live show is fantastic. So go see that whenever we get to see live shows again. And speaking of live shows, thanks to Andy Frasco of Andy Frasco in and the UN. I felt like I was at a live show just talking to him. That was a total trip. Consequence of Sound is still running that contest. You can win a box set full of every single CD that Miles has ever released. So head on over to consequencesound.net and uh, enter before you miss your chance, because that is a lot of incredible music that you could win. As always, like, subscribe, tell your friends, continue to spread the gospel of the opus so that I can continue to make the opus forever and ever and ever more. And especially while we're all locked inside of our houses, go back, check out the old episodes, spread the word. It's the perfect time to get into a new podcast. But uh, be safe out there. Stay healthy. Wash your damn hands. Thanks for listening, y'all. The Consequence of Sound, Sony Legacy Recordings. I'm your host, Andy Bothwell. And this is The Opus.